Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. It's amazing to us as we've just noted earlier that um, we can be in your presence. How can that be? How can it be that sinful human beings can stand in the very presence of God and sing his praises and pray and know that we're heard and even know that you delight in the praise that we give? And we come realizing that all of that is true because of our Lord Jesus who's come for us to die for us, to give himself for us, and even as he lives to intercede for us. And so, Father, we're grateful. So now I pray, as those amazed again that you have been kind to give us your word, that we would listen to it, believe it, and live it out. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to James in chapter 5. I want to read, as I've been reading the last couple of weeks, beginning in verse 13 and moving to the end of the chapter. So James in chapter 5, please. And just a note, just to keep us on task, at the end of the reading, I'll ask us all to say uh, together this, this response that we have. You can find it in your, in your bulletin, perhaps. I can even find it in your bulletin to, to show it. There it is. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. That we'll say at the end. Please now, James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has Great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And then together, the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's not no hard, is it? Could you just look at me for a minute, right? And say, the grass withers, and the flowers fall, and the word of the Lord stands forever. See, you can even say that without looking at anything. You can just know that. And so every time you read the Bible during the course of the week, you can't read it and and then your mind's just going to go, the grass withers and the flower falls. Now, you know that's true. Come by my, my yard. And you'll see, you won't see flowers fall because we spend a million dollars every summer on, on water. But, but, um, but uh, anyway, you'll see at least the grass withers and you'll go, yeah, that's true. But there's something that doesn't wither or fall and it's the word of the Lord. And so always know that and believe that. Now, what I want to do today, if God will help me, is just take up verse 16, maybe not even all of that, but just verse 16 this morning, which, um, which, which reads, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is, as it is working. But before I get there, let me just make a, a few observations, some of which we've made before, but it's important to see this particular verse sentence in in its context. 
Now, James, as he comes to the end of his letter, is talking about prayer here. That's the theme. We can't miss it. He says the word prayer seven times, uses it in these, in these verses. So we know he's, he's calling us to pray, and he's calling us to pray in all circumstances, whether we're suffering or whether we're happy, whether we're sick or whether we're in sin. So all kinds of circumstances cover the gambit, really the range of all of our circumstances, really. And then we're to pray, all of us, for ourselves individually, personally, and elders are to pray for us on certain occasions, and um, we're to pray for each other. So, so we get it. We we see that he wants us. He wants us to pray. And so, what we see in these verses as well is that we're never to understand our lives to be independent or autonomous. That we're never to be independent of God, nor are we to be independent of each other. We live. In community, we live in communion, you see? We live in communion with God and with each other. We, we get this in the context of the praying, that we're to live, it appears, in this um, continual, conscious presence of God. That's why Paul, in First Thessalonians, could write, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. That is to say that our lives are to be angled, as we've said, in such a way that everything that hits us <laughs> bounces back to God. Now, I used an illustration about that in the second service a couple of weeks that I didn't use here in the first service. So in the second service, you heard this, and if you're you know, sneaking into the first one today, uh, but I didn't give this. Some people have listened to it on the recording because usually we put the first service recording on the Internet. And since some people have said, well, that was different, but that was a helpful illustration. So let me give it to you just so you can have it. It's helpful to me. When I was a kid, it's very pedestrian. When I was a kid, I had this 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 thing. My dad will remember it, I think. It, we called it a backstop. I don't know what it's called. But it was, it was this little metal frame. It had over it this, this mesh, it seemed, or this spongy stuff. And we could set it up in such a way that I could throw a baseball against it and it would bounce back to me. I had three sisters, so during the day, nobody in those days, girls didn't do that sort of thing. So I had nobody to play catch with. So, so uh, uh, my dad came home, I'd torture him, and we'd play uh, into the evening. But, but, but I would throw, and I could angle that thing in such a way that it would, it would give me grounders back. Could angle it in such a way that it give me grounders back. I could angle it in such a way it give me pop ups back, or I could angle it in such a way it give me line drives back. And that's the way our lives are to be, you see. Our lives are to be in such be angled in such a way that every time something hits us, it bounces back. But to God, you see, that's this nature of living in this conscious communion with the Lord. Our, ang- our lives are to be angled in that way, and so so we get it. We're not to be ever independent of God, but we're neither to be independent of each other. Uh, we can see that. Elders are to pray f- for us, for instance. And thus we realize that we're always to be in church. We're always to be part of church. We're in communion with each other. The Bible's word for that is church. Um, and as I mentioned, and you know this in, in the original language of the scripture, ecclesia, uh, 
is the word for church in Greek. Ek is out of kaleo, call, where it will be called out of. But it isn't simply that, not just simply called out of the world, but we're called into this assembly, this gathering, this group, this communion. And so when James writes, he's aware that these people to whom he writes, who are sick, are part of church so that they can call for elders because church is to be arranged under the oversight of elders, you see. And elders are to nurture and to watch for spiritual protection and so forth. And so that's the way God has arranged our lives. He's arranged us in families, arranged us in other political communities. He's arranged us in church under elders. And so he says, call for them. I've ordained them to pray for you. So we're not independent of one another because we're in church. And the elders can come and pray for us. And then in this passage, he also says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. And so we realize that these are all things that James would expect that they would hear and go, I know what that means because I know who each other is <laughs> because I'm part of church. I know who elders are because I'm part of church. I'm not independent of others. So in the Bible, we read expressions about church that we're the household of God. We're together in this. We're the body of Christ we're together in this. We're united, you see. So we need to bear in mind, as James writes about praying, he's also saying in the context of this, that, of course, therefore, we're not independent of God. Neither are we independent of each other because we pray for and with each other. So, so he's saying all of that uh, as well. But notice, too, in this passage, the, the, the broader passage that I read, that James seems to be concerned both about our physical bodies and also our spiritual lives, our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. In fact, he uses language, and this, is done, this isn't uh, all that different from other parts of the scripture, he uses language that's somewhat ambiguous. In other words, depending on the context, it can either be referring to our physical well-being or our spiritual well-being. For instance, as we mentioned, I think last Sunday, that he uses this expression, uh, especially in calling for the elders of the church, are, are any among you is sick? And the, the word he uses is simply weak. Now, in the context, sick is a good <laughs> translation, but yet weak has, has just a broader bit of a, of, of, of a sense about it. Weak from the sickness, but it could also mean a spiritual weakness because he also talks about confessing our sins. And, and so it seems like he's, he's concerned about both. In verse 15, he says, And the prayer of faith will save. That sounds like a salvation word as opposed to a healing word. But we know in the Gospels, the word save is also often accompanies physical healings. So what does he mean there? And we get the sense that he's talking about a person who's sick, probably, and being raised up physically, that it's, it's healing, physical healing there. Uh, but then he goes on to say, if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. <laughs> and then you get this sense, what kind of healing is he really, is he really talking about? And in fact, we, we find that the word heal not only is used in the Bible to refer to, um, you know, physical healing, sickness and so forth, but also healing spiritually. In fact, uh, when we read of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah, in the classic passage that we love so much in Isaiah chapter 53, he writes, Surely he was, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Well, you get the sense he's talking about forgiveness of sins and reconciled to God. That, 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 in fact, that's how, that's how Peter takes it when Peter quotes uh, this passage in First Peter in, in uh, chapter 2. In verse uh, well, 23, he's talking about Jesus. He said, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep and have now turned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So Peter understands that, at least as he applies it to this being forgiven of sins, healing being forgiven of sins. But, but, but so James uses it here as confessing our sins, praying for each other to be healed. So that seems like he means spiritual healing. So, so my question, just to make you confused, is, is really what's going on here? Uh, there seems to be a concern about both our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. And they both, in some sense, seem to be uh, connected. Now, now we know from Scripture that there isn't a direct link generally between one's um, physical particular sickness and a particular sin. In other words, if, if you get the flu or if you get cancer, you can't necessarily look back and say, well, it's that sin that did it. Um, uh, but yet sometimes we know there is a connection. Uh, you remember I read last Sunday from 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. Where Paul is talking about uh, having communion together. And he is saying that uh, some have taken communion in the church in Corinth um, disrespectfully. Uh, without really discerning what is happening in the meal. And so he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Oh my. And then we see too in Mark in chapter 2, where where Jesus uh, comes upon a man who's paralyzed, and he begins the relationship by saying, your sins are forgiven. And you go, well, shouldn't you heal him, Jesus? I mean, you, you know, why are you worried about his sins? But that seems to be what's on your mind. Your sins are forgiven. And then he says to the crowd, which is easier uh, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Uh, I think they're both pretty hard, uh, actually. Uh, I'm not sure at times which is the hardest, but at least you get the sense that Jesus is saying, I can forgive sins. And, and look, I'll, I'll let you know I can forgive sins because I can heal his body too. But, but still, these things seem to be in some way connected. And then in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus comes upon a man who's laying in front of a pool and he wants to get in because he, he, be, he, he thinks he can be healed. And uh, so Jesus heals him by saying, take up your bed and walk. But then when he releases him, when he says goodbye to him, he says this, see, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And so we see, somehow there's this connection between our physical bodies and, and us spiritually as well. That shouldn't surprise us. 
might confuse us at times to wonder what is being talked about in the Bible. It, it seems somewhat clear, at least to most, that when Jesus, or when uh, James says call for the elders of the church, he's talking about physical healing. And when he says to confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, he's talking about receiving forgiveness and assurance of forgiveness. But still, why are they, why do they seem to be connected so often together? Well, we know why. The narrative, or how we understand this, is by understanding this, this little progression of redemptive history from creation through what we call the fall to redemption to ultimate consummation. And we can see what's happening there with us, with human beings. Now, you remember at creation that uh, God created everything uh, and, and all was good. There was no sin, that is, nothing was rebelling against God, nothing separated from him, no sin. So therefore, there was no need of forgiveness. Therefore, there was no sickness or death for human beings. All was good. Creation. Then, we realized there was a bit of a probation, we might call it, Scholars, theologians have called it that. Where God says you can't eat from this particular tree, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The intent wasn't so much the fruit of the tree being poisonous or something like that. But the intent was to test the obedience, the loyalty, the love of Adam with God. To see if he would depend upon God and God alone to define what was good and evil. Or if he would take it upon himself to be like God. And say what is good and what is evil. We know what happened. Adam eventually ate of the tree. Sin entered. What happened then? What happened when sin? Well, then they couldn't eat of the tree of life. Right? So they lost life. What kind of life did they lose? Every kind of life. Life in relationship with God, which we may call spiritually, but also physical life, physical death, sickness, And death entered into the human race at that point. And so we see the connection right there. And so then redemption comes. So what is to be redeemed? Better, who is to be redeemed? All of us. I mean, every aspect of us. Everything that was damaged by the fall is redeemed by Jesus. Physically and spiritually. We get it spiritually. He overcomes the spiritual death by giving us new life by the Holy Spirit. And we're born again, you see. And so there's new life. And we know that then he overcomes the physical death aspect, not because we don't die physically, but because there's resurrection, you see. And so we get it. We see that he's accomplished complete, if we could say that, redemption for us, both spiritually and physically. That's, that's how we understand our lives. Now, before the consummation, the end comes, we realize the life in which we're living. We live in between the first and second coming of Jesus. And so we, we live in this, this a, a little bit of an ambiguous, confusing situation. On the one hand, we know we're forgiven our sins. We know that we're adopted into the family of God. We know that we're justified, that is, that he sees us righteous in his sight because of Jesus. But we also know that we still sin. So while the penalty of sin has been taken. We can have assurance about that. 
And while the ultimate or the enslaving power of sin has been broken, we know that because we believe, but still yet we continue to sin because it's still present here. And so we continue to sin. And so we're in a process called sanctification, being made more holy, conformed to the image of Jesus. And that process, as we know, goes something like this continually in our lives, that we hear the truth from the scripture about the holiness of God and how we're to live. We take that and believe it. And then we apply that to our own lives. And we realize, even as believers, that there are times when we've obeyed and so we give thanks. And then we realize too that there's times when we've sinned. And we realize those and we confess that as sins. We agree with God that that was sin and wrong. And then by his spirit we repent, which means that we desire and move towards turning from that sin and living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. In biblical language, that can be referred to as putting off the old and putting on the new, or dying to self, if you will, mortifying the flesh is the old language. And so, so that sense of it, you see. And then what do we do after that? Well, then we hear the word again, and then what do we do? We believe it, and then what do we do? Well, we look at our own lives, and we give thanks for where we've obeyed, and we confess where we've sinned, and by the power of the Spirit, we repent, and we live on and then what do we do well then we hear the truth and then we you know we, we keep doing this that seems to be the the story of our lives uh as we as we live out and we we hopefully we're growing you see we're growing you see we're maturing in Christ Jesus but yet we realize still uh, that that will always be the case until until the consummation, right? And then we look at our physical bodies and we realize that there are times when sickness comes and we're healed. Various means. Quite frankly, we don't see, we haven't experienced since the days of Jesus and the apostles, the kind of um, relatively, especially in the life of Jesus, routine, instantaneous healings, right? The surprise we read about certain things, certain pockets of the world, certain times. But when Jesus walked around, he healed a lot. And even in the days of the apostles, they, they seemed to heal more. But yet, as we read through the book of Acts, we read through the letters and so forth as the church matures. We, we don't see it quite as much. And so we know that Jesus revealed what the kingdom of God would look like. Thus, there would be healing. And the apostles then, through their healing, um, um, were affirmed, confirmed that they were apostles of Jesus. But now we, we don't see it as we did. But we see it sometimes. In some various ways, God uses various means, whether it's wisdom through medicine or however, to bring healing. And so we depend upon him for all things, including our health. But we do know a day will come and we'll die. But, in the consummation, there is perfection of life, spiritually, physically, in every way. No sin. There's no need for forgiveness there because of sins committed in glory. And no physical death either. No sickness. Because we'll have bodies eventually that are imperishable. So, last observation is then, 
we have to live life in light of what's to come. We're always looking to that. We're always praying towards that. We're always looking at the life that is to come. So, with that in mind now, I want to take up this little expression where James says, therefore, confess your sins uh, to one another. Uh, Pray for one another that you may be healed. What really does uh, James have uh, in mind here? Well, he says we're to confess. That is, we're to agree with God and with each other things that we've done wrong. Where we've sinned against God. Sin, we've missed the mark. There's a mark with a hint, we've missed it. Um, in the traditional confessions that uh, are sometimes um, prayed, and we use these traditional confessions from time to time, uh, that uh, we've sinned in thought, word, and deed, so all kinds of ways. Uh, we've left undone those things which, which we ought to have done, and we've done those things which we ought not to have done. So there's sins of omission, things we should have done we didn't, and commission, things that we did we shouldn't have, right? And then there's often the expression that to God that I have not loved you as I ought, nor have I loved my neighbor as myself. And that's the key transgression, isn't it? The summary transgression that we haven't loved. We're to love. We haven't loved God. We haven't loved each other. And that's the sin of it, you see. And so when we confess either to God or to each other, we're confessing that we've not really loved as we ought to have loved. And God lays this out for us, and we call the Ten Commandments, these tablets of love, if you will, that we're to love him, that is, we're to worship him and not depend upon that worship an idol or anyone else. And we're to worship him as he reveals himself, not as we understand him to be. We hear this expression in in the world in which we live, God as you understand him to be. (laughs) Okay? That isn't it, you see. It's God as who he is. It doesn't matter how we understand him to be, only if we understand him to be as he's revealed himself to be. If we worship a God who isn't God, then we're not worshiping God, you see. And, And so we need to worship him. That's the second commandment, as he really is, as he's really revealed himself. And we're to honor him, glorify him with our lives, and we're to rest in him this Sabbath. We're to rest in him and trust in him alone for everything that we need. And then we're to love each other. Um, We're to honor our parents, if you will, uh, to love those whom God has arranged for us, to nurture and protect and guard our lives, our parents, you see, we're to, to love them. We're to love one another in such a way that we don't take one another's life, that is, that we don't murder. And, and that is a positive effect, and that is that we're to respect life. We see in our world today, and it's always been true, clearly it's erupting in various ways now, we see this disrespect for the lives of others, especially the lives of those we think different than ourselves. That's a violation, you see, of Love to neighbor. It's a violation of the commandment of God. You shouldn't murder. When you disrespect the life of another. whom God has made. In his image. We're sinning. Not only against that person. But against God you see. And even when we have hateful thoughts. And we think I wish this person weren't here. Oh. It's a slippery slope to. Maybe we could do something about that. That's the point of it, you see. 
shouldn't murder. We should be faithful in the most intimate of relationships of husbands and wives. So we shouldn't commit adultery. Not simply having intercourse with another person outside of my marriage. That's true. That's wrong and sinful. But even thoughts of it. Not to lust, you see. Not to find replacements for our spouse, whether it's in work or in recreation, games or whatever it is. We're to love our spouses, our husbands, or to love our wives and wives' husbands, you see. We're not to steal from each other. We're not to lie to each other. We're to respect each other, to live truthful lives. We're not to covet. We're to be thankful when other people have what we don't have because they have it. We should be thankful for them. And we should be content in what we have for ourselves. See, that's it. And, and so when we sin, by not loving, you see, we're to confess. What does James mean? Confess your sins to each other. Well, he doesn't mean that we're to find someone in our midst who is kind of a stand-in for Christ. So we don't have one particular designate, a priest or something, to whom we come and confess our sins. He doesn't mean that. He says to one another. So it's broader than just one that there's a designate who can stand for Christ. We, we don't need really anyone else, actually, because as the scripture tells us, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one we, we need. So however we do this, as we confess sins to one another, it's to be that we pray. And that prayer then goes to Jesus, that he will forgive sins and bring reconciliation, whatever sphere that's in. So he's our only high priest. He's the one who's made the way for us. He's the one who intercedes for us. He's the one through whom we go. And so so James doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean there's somebody in your particular church community that you can designate as the one to whom everyone goes and confesses their sins and he carries them to the Lord because you can't. That's not his point. He's not excluding personal confession here. He's not being exhaustive in his language here. So it isn't, uh, it isn't that. And I don't think either it's coming into a gathering of worship. I, think G- I don't think James has envisioned that we would come in and on a Sunday morning go one by one, each one of us stand up and reveal our personal sins. I don't, I don't think he means that. There have been times in gatherings of people that such a thing has happened and I, I never know what to make of it, actually, but su- such things happen, and it seems to be a blessing at the time. Uh, but I don't think that's the norm of Christian gatherings. There's a sense in which we do this every Sunday in a general way. We make confession of our sin. That's why we have a prayer of confession. We don't have to do that. And there have been seasons in our church life and liturgy where we haven't done that. Um, for many of you, you've come only in this last season, and so it's all you know. But there were times when I would pray a prayer of confession for everyone. Just kind of, I would pray the prayer, some kind of prayer of confession for us all in a sort of more corporate prayer. We could, we could, we could certainly do that. But it's helpful, I think, beneficial for us to actually pray something where we're verbalizing something together, confessing in a general way our sins, that we're sinners, you see. Why is that beneficial? Well, for one reason, it kind of puts a damper on hypocrisy. <laughs> because we've all come and we've all said this prayer together. If you believe that you're a sinner, you've said this prayer. And I know sometimes it seems ritualistic and all that. You've said this prayer. Uh, and what that does for us is enables us to verbalize it 
kind of begin the process of getting it out. And, and when you hear me pray it and I hear you pray it, then if you start acting holier than thou, or I start acting holier than thou, then I can say, remember last Sunday we prayed this prayer. You're a sinner too, so just, you know, chill, cool your jets. Uh, you know, uh, we, we get that. So once we've done that, you see, and so, so students can hear professors confess their sins and, and, and kids can hear their parents say, I'm a sinner. And, 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 and those who are poor can hear the rich or the attractive and the non-attractive and various ones of different. We're, we're all the same. At that point, we're sinners in the sight of God without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And that's what this prayer of confession, I think, I hope, helps us, helps us do. I, I always worry when I worship in a gathering of Christians on a Sunday when I'm not here, I'm out and about for some reason, and there's no confession of sin from the congregation. I remember one time years ago, I was in a church, an associate pastor in a church in Colorado before coming here, as you might suspect, since I've been here so long, I was young then. But uh, I remember a friend of mine, a friend of ours, coming to worship with us. And uh, there was no prayer of confession in our liturgy that morning in that particular church. It's just not, they just didn't do that. I don't know why. And, uh, and it wasn't my job to do it. So anyway, we, we, we did it. And my friend came to me and he said, there was no prayer of confession in your liturgy today. And I said, yeah, I know. He says, do your people not sin? <laughs> And I, I said, well, maybe we should work on that. Not the sinning part, but the praying part. And, uh, and so, uh, but there's this sense of, you see, that's why. And the benefit, you see, is that we realize at that moment, if we haven't realized it yet, as we gather, the ground really is level at the foot of the cross. One of the reasons we have a cross up here is, I hope as you come in just as a symbol it causes you to realize that we're all there under it, right? All of us. No matter how good anybody might look on the outside, we all know that that's where we belong, under the cross of Jesus. In fact, this sanctuary is open uh, during the week, during office hours of the church, when the church is opened. And it's, it, you know, there's usually not a huge crowd in here most uh, days. There are hours. Uh, I come in here at various times during the week to pray. Uh, Sunday mornings especially, I get here early, as you know. But I would encourage you sometime, and again, this isn't magic, and don't think I'm crazy, but just stand under that cross for a minute. There's no power there. I mean, it's not electric. It's not, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't live there and all that kind of stuff. But just as a, you know, sometimes it's helpful to kneel when you pray, and sometimes it's helpful to raise your hands when you pray, and sometimes you may find it helpful to lay on your, on your stomach and pray. Uh, there's something that's helpful too sometimes about just that being there. In fact, if you're five foot eight, there's a couple of stones that you can grab a hold of right about here. And uh, just stand there for, and just realize, okay, yes, this is where I live, under the cross of Jesus. And then to project, this is where we all live. So we all live. And so you see, when we pray together like that, we confess our sins to each other like that, then you see, we're recognizing that we're all the same 
We're all needy. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Every single one of us. And we stop, I hope, looking at each other in terms of what you're wearing or where you might live or what kind of car you might drive or what occupation you have or the color of your skin or where you come from or any of that. And we just see each other as the Lord sees us, you see. And there's some great benefit to that, that we pray like that. But James seems to give the impression that we're to, we're to, we're to pray to another, or to confess our sins even to another person, not just generally, but perhaps to another person. And so what does he mean by that? I think at least two things, one for sure and one a pretty good maybe. This is the pretty good maybe, that it's helpful for us at times to have a person that we know well enough or people that we can go to at particular times in our lives when we're struggling with sin and confess. Now you have to be careful because you don't want to just sort of uh, have this sort of hyper introspection. I, I often wonder what it might have been like to be Martin Luther's father confessor. That's all you do all day is listen to Luther confess his sins. Now that's not the point of it. It's not that we're just to try to find stuff that we can go and we can tell our sins to. But there are times when we're struggling with particular sins. And one of the deep problems of that kind of, of sin is isolation. That we often pull ourselves away from others. And we think that we're alone in this. And we think that nobody really wants to fellowship with us. Even though they don't know about it necessarily. And we pull ourselves away. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book called Life Together. It was his experiences of having um, had sort of an underground seminary in the uh, days of the Nazis. And... Um, with 25 students. And he, they lived together. So he wrote a book aptly titled Life Together. And in a particular chapter called Confession and Communion, he says this about confessing our sins to one another. Now, I don't agree with everything in this section, but I'll read to you at least parts of what I do. Uh, he says, In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It would, withdraws him from the community. I've seen it happen. I've seen... I wonder, so, so please keep showing up at church on Sunday or I'll wonder about you. I, I wonder, why have they gone away? Why have they separated? Why don't I see them anymore? Why don't, they, why don't I see them fellowshipping? Why aren't they talking to other people, you see? Uh, don't bank that and go, okay, now I know how to, now I know how to fake it. Better just, you know. But, but, but it does, you see. You may have experienced this. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of the sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous in his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light and the darkness of the unexpressed. It poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. Now, sometimes we can do that personally and privately, you see. But sometimes we might be so into it that we know that no matter how many times I say it, it's not being brought into the light because I can't get wait, wait to get back to it, you see. And so Bonhoeffer, out of his experience with these men, and I think also the experience of the history of the church, there are times when it's helpful to have someone to whom we can go, to whom we can confess our sins and it be brought into the light. And there's something, in certain situations, where that's healing. Sometimes, 
when it's brought into the light, especially if you've chosen the right person to go to, go to a mature person, right? Uh, And someone who can keep a confidence, but also somebody who's under the cross in his or her own life. They know who they are under the cross. And thus they won't be condemning. How could they be? And they'll take it, not to someone else. They won't play with it in their own mind to think themselves better than you. But they'll take it with you to the Lord. You'll confess your sins and you'll pray. And what they'll pray is, thanks to God. Their dear brother or sister realizes this sin. And thanks to God that Jesus has died and risen. And thanks to God that there is forgiveness of sins. And thanks to God that we can have assurance of that forgiveness. And thanks be to God now that this person who's brought this into light can know this assurance of forgiveness. And to pray then that God would bring strength to this brother or sister so that he or she can, can live now free. Not only of the guilt of this thing, but the experience of this thing. Ah, oh, you see. There's something about that. And James is telling us, you're knit together. You're knit together. So confess your sins. Rely upon each other for help in this way, you see. And pray that you may be healed, you see. And then this too, I think James has in mind that if we have particular sins against each other, that we need to go to each other. Jesus said, if you're coming to worship and, and yet you know your brother has something against you because they should have something against you because of what you've said or done, then go to them before you bring your gift. It's that important, you see. It's that important, you see. Because we're knit together with God and each other. And so, make sure it's right with you and God. So you confess your sins to God and you confess your sins to the ones against whom you've sinned so that you know this, you see. And and there's great healing in that. Now, just as a word of caution, as we confess our sins to each other, sins we've committed against each other, if you've hurt someone, if you've said something or done someone, go to them and share with them what you've said or done. If it's simply a thought, it's nothing you've done, then confess that thought to God. Like, don't go to someone and say, I want to tell you I'm sorry because I've never liked you. (laughs) You see, I mean, unless you've actually done something that's proven you don't like them, then it really doesn't help very much. For goodness sake, don't go to someone and say, I've lusted after you, right? That could be really awkward. Right? I mean, right? I mean, uh, but, but if you've done something in response to that that's inappropriate, then you would confess it. But, but, you, but you see what I mean. If it's a thought, only God knows that, and, and thus go to the one who knows it and who's aware of it. If you've done something or said something to or about a person that's hurt them, then you go to them. And that sin of commission, you see, or even omission, but not just thought. That's a dangerous, that's a dangerous thing, you see. And so go to God with the thoughts, but the things that you've said and done, go to the person. And then you see, just as I read this morning out of Matthew 18, that, that because we've been forgiven our sins, the most welcoming person into our lives should be the person who sinned against us. We should be most welcoming to them, if I could say it. Why? Because we know that we've been forgiven. How can we withhold forgiveness? We should be confident, you see, if I've sinned against a brother or sister. We should be confident to be able to go to them. Now, that doesn't mean we go arrogantly. We go humbly and sadly because we've hurt them. 
But still we go. Why? But because we know they'll receive us. And how do we know they'll receive us? Because Christ has received them. And we're not presuming upon that. But we know it's true. And we might make restitution, you see, as a sign of repentance. But still, if we've hurt them, we still go and we share that. And the person who receives them is aware that if you have, if you've forgiven someone, then you know you bear the burden, you bear the cost of that forgiveness. Forgiveness always costs the forgiver. Always costs the forgiver. Costs God through Jesus to forgive us. And we bear the cost of the damaged reputation or the hurt or whatever it is, you see. And so, we forgive as we have been forgiven, James says. Confess your sins if you've hurt someone and go to them. Confess. Pray together that you may be healed. Now, I don't know about you, but... but prayer to me if I could say it this way it's kind of a funny thing I I think sometimes after I've prayed with someone or even prayed alone I think what did I just do I mean I just said words or thought words addressed to someone I can't see trusting that he has heard me and that he is wise and powerful and good and will actually respond to me And then I think, if the one I can't see is God, and I think of me as the sinner, I think, whew, why would he ever hear me? And so James says, the effective, I have to quote this out of the King James Bible, I'm sorry. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I say, oh good, all I have to be is righteous. How could that ever be? Well, if you're asking that question, go back to our catechism question of the morning and come next week. We'll talk about it more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is amazing to us that you hear us. But it isn't amazing when we think of Jesus. For he is the only one who can make a way for us. For he's the only mediator because he's both God and man and he bridges the gap for you he is in perfect communion and with us he's in perfect communion and so we come to you in him and through him his blood and righteousness and so we ask on behalf of ourselves and others, that you would forgive our sins, that you would grant us the grace by your Spirit to repent, turn from them, that you would grant us assurance of forgiveness, and that you would grant us strength to live in a way that glorifies you. I pray that for those on this day who are afraid of the world in which we live and the danger that seems to be upon us and the hatred that seems to permeate, that still you would enable us 
to when we find ourselves attached to hatred and we would confess our sins to you and the ones that we've hurt and we'd be forgiven and strengthened to live in such a way wherein the world can say to us, blessed are the peacemakers for that are sons of God. And I pray this for those who find themselves in weakness, sickness, that as they lie and contemplate life, they recognize that even in their sickness that you love them and there's forgiveness of sins and thus they may be free from the worry that a particular sin has caused their sickness. And I pray that you would bring healing to those who need it. And I pray, God, for those who are in difficult relationships, that you would bring healing in those relationships by way of confession and prayer. And, Father, that you would grant your grace to us as a church that we as a gathering of your people would know that we live in communion with you and with each other in such a way that the world would look upon us and say, see how they love one another and glorify you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.